0: I will not talk about anyone up here because our children cannot afford to live anywhere. Nowhere. There's nowhere to go. Once again, why? You said it. The rent is too damn high. Well, that, as many of you might know, was Jimmy, the rent is too damn high, McMillan, who ran for governor of New York, and that was from a debate he gave in 2010. We're going to be talking about issues such as the rent is too damn high later today on Short Circuit, your podcast on the Federal Courts of Appeals. I'm your host, Anthony Sanders, Director of the Center for Judicial Engagement at the Institute for Justice. I have with me today uh, two colleagues of mine from the Institute for Justice, and they are going to be uh, discussing two recent cases, one about um, rent and the takings clause, and that's from the Second Circuit. It's actually two cases that uh, came out at the same time. The other is about um, a bit of a different issue, live streaming the police and qualified immunity. Um, and if you know nothing else except what I just said, and you're a regular short circuit listener, you probably know where this is going. So we're going to have um, one of our qualified immunity experts talking about that in a little bit, Patrick Giacomo. And then we're having, uh, we're having back on the show uh, Saranjan Sen, who is, um, is going to delve into our uh, takings issues and paying the rent. But first, A couple announcements. Now, one is last week we had a bit of a impromptu um, competition on decretal language. Now, decretal language has nothing to do with mortuary science. It is what appellate courts say when they are like done with the case. And so we had a discussion about what's the difference between a reversal and a vacator. And then we threw it out to you listeners and said, well, okay, who's going to tell us the answer and we'll, we'll pick a winner. And I'm very happy to say today that we have a winner. Um, and this person is, has some, uh, IJ swag being sent to them as, as we, as I speak. Um, but I just like to read a couple, couple notes of what this person had to say. So the person said they're, um, they're an appellate clerk. And so you know you, you have to know about these issues a, a bit if you're if you're working for an, an appellate court and what they had to say is is kind of what we said last week in the uh, the piece by Judge Newman that we brought up which is and I'm, I'm reading now from this email in a nutshell I would describe the difference between vacator and reversal is that vacator means, you did something wrong, or for some reason your decision can't stand, cancel it and go back and do things the right way. Whereas reversal means you did the wrong thing, this is the right thing, and there's nothing more to you for you to do. Um, and this, of course, as a, the person points out, and as, as we discussed, is kind of a, it's something more the reversal way, is something more appellate courts do where. Um, there's full review of the issue de novo, as we lawyers like to say. Um, whereas if there's some discretion that needs to be done by the district court by the trial court, then it's more likely to be a vacator. Like you need a new hearing for evidence or you need to be have sentencing of, uh, of, of a defendant again. That's um, what the distinction often comes down to. But of course it gets, as we said, it gets messy. And I like how um, this person says there are lots of areas where judges are sometimes imprecise or sloppy. Very well put. So uh, that, thank you for playing. Uh, I look forward to more short circuit competitions in the future. Now, something that is not a competition, but that you may want to uh, want to go to if you live in the area. Are a couple events that Patrick is actually going to be at. So, Patrick, welcome to the show, and tell our listeners in um, Cleveland and Washington D.C. how they might uh, come and see you. Hey, thank you. Uh, Yeah, I'm here to plug my tour dates. Uh,
1: On this Saturday, February 18th, I will be in Cleveland, where IJ. Hello, Cleveland. Hello, Cleveland. Where uh, IJ is hosting a comedy event called "Comedy Is Not a Crime" um, to promote the fact that we've been litigating against First Amendment issues that are being thwarted by qualified immunity, which is a theme we'll talk about when I discuss the case earlier later in this podcast. Then um, on uh, March 6th, Anya and I will be doing two qualified immunity events in, in Raleigh-Durham area, one at Duke and the other at Campbell Law. And the day after that, uh, March 7th, IJ and Georgetown Center for the Constitution will be co-hosting an event promoting uh, qualified immunity, giant UCLA law professor Joanna Schwartz's new book, Shielded. Um, It will be a 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. symposium talking all about the issues that prevent uh, victims of police abuse from getting accountability from their abusers. So we've got a lot of stuff coming up in the next month or so.
0: So uh, I didn't even know about the event in North Carolina. So you really do have, have a tour going on. Um, well, we'll get to uh, Patrick's tour in a moment, but first I'd like to uh, in- just just say hello and introduce uh, Saranjan Scent, who was on uh, uh, with us just a couple weeks ago and is now back with the Takings Clause. How are you doing, Saranjan?
2: Hi, Anthony. I'm doing great, and thank you for having me back on here. And hi,
0: everybody. Well, uh, we'll get to Patrick in just a moment. Just one more thing. Um, we we also have this event coming up at the end of uh, end of March that we'll be talking about more. Uh, it, it is on the hundredth anniversary of Meyer versus Nebraska, and so we're going to be talking um, we're going to be talking about that at the end of March. And you can sign up and a link in the show notes if you live in the DC area, or you can catch it on live stream if you do not. Okay, enough of this. We're getting on to our favorite kind of live streaming, which is live streaming the police. So Patrick, um, can I do that? And if I do and it doesn't work out, can I sue the cops?
1: Well, you can do it. If it doesn't work out, you might not be able to sue the cops. And that's sort of the tension at issue between qualified immunity and the First Amendment, in this case, Sharp versus Winterville. So we're going like I will be in March to North Kakalaki. There, police pulled some people over. One of the uh, passengers in the car began live streaming the police interaction. The police tried to grab his phone. They told him he couldn't record. They threatened to arrest him. He ultimately stopped recording um, and then later filed a lawsuit against the city for its policy um, of, of preventing recording and live streaming and then also sued the individual officers for violating his First Amendment rights. And this is a common way that we see these types of qualified immunity cases Play out, but I think it's extremely illustrative of what the problem with qualified immunity is when it comes to constitutional accountability. Because what happened was this Uh, the district court said there was no First Amendment issue here, threw everything out, granted the officers qualified immunity, but now we're in the Fourth Circuit. They look at this situation, they consider the live streaming of the police to be protected by the First Amendment. They state this very plainly. So that's good news. Thumbs up. They say that you can live stream the police as a matter of the First Amendment. And the question becomes when you sue the city for its policy preventing live streaming of the police, um, can the city then, once the burden flips, survive strict scrutiny and explain why um, its prohibition on live streaming is um, is uh, narrowly tailored to to match the appropriate amount of interest? Here the court doesn't say whether we're talking about content neutral um, uh, speech or content. Or, uh, or content focused speech. And I think the answer is clearly the second, but the court doesn't get into that. And here, the main issue, or at least the way that the police have framed it up, is that unlike recording, live streaming presents special concerns to officer safety because it broadcasts potentially the location of where the police interaction is taking place. And that is sort of where a lot of the work is done in this opinion and what's left when the issue of whether this uh, policy by the police department is or is not actually unconstitutional. So we don't know the answer to that. The case is remanded on that point. I do think it's interesting, and we should pause for just a second on this safety of the officers issue, because obviously this is something that comes up a lot when we're dealing with constitutional violations in the policing context. And the thing that I don't quite understand, and the court doesn't have to get into this, is this argument that somehow letting people know where the police interaction is happening is itself dangerous to police. And the reason that I think that that's particularly – odd and the court doesn't pause on this at all is that presumably many if not most police interactions that uh, involve traffic stops but probably most arrests or detainments involve in some – or take place somewhere public where people can see what's happening. And So the thought that the police need to be shielded or their location needs to be shielded is an interesting issue uh, for the courts to say sort of revolves on – Uh, police safety. And so I think that's something that we'll see come up more in the future as these issues are sussed out. Um, But it's not something that we get an answer to here in Sharp. Now, here's the twist. And here's why qualified immunity is so terrible. Notwithstanding the fact that the court has now just said, this is First Amendment protected activity, live streaming the police during a traffic stop is protected by the First Amendment. It turns out you can't actually enforce that right when it comes to the officers who violated it. Uh, And the reason is simple. Qualified immunity trumps the First Amendment just like it trumps many other constitutional rights whenever it applies and it applies frequently and the reason is this. The qualified immunity standard protects any government official who violates your rights unless there's clearly established law um, that lets them know – the courts say this provides fair notice – that what they did was unconstitutional. And here the court says, aha, there is clearly established law that says you can't record the police – But there's no clearly established law that says you can't live stream the police. And that distinction is sufficient for us to grant these officers qualified immunity. And we see this time and time and time and time again uh, where the way that this always works and the reason qualified immunity is more or less a doctrine of judicial grace is that any court could split the hairs finely enough or pull out far enough on the picture to either grant or deny qualified immunity in a lot of instances. And so For instance, in a case that is actually going to be discussed on the Supreme Court's conference probably the day that this this airs, February 17th, uh, called Novak versus Parma, which we're litigating. There, uh, a man parodied his police department. They arrested him. He sued them. The court said, well, of course, parodying itself is a protected speech. But – He deleted comments to his parody posts on Facebook and since there's no case that specifically says deleting comments is protected speech and we're not going to decide it, the officers get qualified immunity and that's the same thing that happened here except instead of deleting comments, we're talking about live streaming. Now, the interesting thing about this case is that it was well known that this was a live streaming event. He was saying he was on Facebook Live and the police were interacting with him that way and they specifically told him you can't live stream but you can record – but I, I don't know how workable of a distinction this could be going forward because in a lot of instances, it seems impossible for police to be able to tell in the moment whether someone's just recording or whether they're live streaming. Um, but again, that's not something that comes up. I think that's going to be an issue in the future. So that's that's the big picture with the actual holding of the case and how the First Amendment protects things that actually turn out to be unenforceable in instances where qualified immunity swoops in and saves The government officials who violated the constitution from accountability. Another interesting twist though in this case is that we have a two-to-one decision uh, with with a concurrence from Judge Niemeyer. So I guess it's actually a a unanimous opinion with a concurrence. But uh, Judge Niemeyer basically – his whole concurrence goes on to say, well, here we have this overlap between the First Amendment and the Fourth Amendment because this recording took place in the context of a traffic stop where the bystander, as is known to all police officers, is in custody while the, while, the, while the vehicle is stopped. And basically, he's saying, when you have this overlap between the First and Fourth Amendments like this, he thinks that the Fourth Amendment should essentially control and override the more protective First Amendment. So he argues, here, what we should be looking at is whether it was reasonable for the police to, to, stop, um, to stop Mr. Sharp from live streaming not whether the issue would um, overcome strict scrutiny as a matter of the First Amendment. And if that's true, and there is some logic to it, I have to admit, it really does create a concerning situation where your rights are contingent on um, the context in which the court decides to address them. And so if it's a Fourth Amendment violation, all the police need to show is that they acted reasonably. And I think in the context of stopping someone from live streaming, that's a pretty low bar But in the First Amendment context, you've got a much, much higher bar where you need to show that this this serves some sort of compelling interest. Um, And so that's that's just some food for thought. We've seen this happen uh, in a number of other instances, and I don't think that the courts have really gotten to a satisfactory equilibrium when it comes to how they address competing First and Fourth Amendment
0: violations when they're overlapping into the same factual scenario. Saranjan, um, when you live stream your interactions with the police, does does this happen?
2: Uh, well, one thing that I was wondering about is whether, Patrick, does it seem clear from you that the police in this instance actually made the, the like, acted differently because of, they thought they were being live streamed? Like, how, how do they know that versus that they're just being recorded?
1: Yeah, so I, I believe that uh, the plaintiff was saying like we're on Facebook Live. Uh, there, it doesn't seem from the discussion of the facts. There's no dispute that everyone knew this was being streamed to Facebook Live, and it was almost being said, presumably by the plaintiff, as like a prophylactic measure, like "Hey, you're being watched."
2: Oh, okay, okay. Um, <clears throat> and and uh, just to, to clarify for the listeners, I, I guess the uh, the the city with regard to their their policy that they had that you were talking about in the beginning, that isn't. That isn't subject to qualified immunity.
1: Correct, and that's that's sort of the rub in these spaces. So when you're trying to sue a city, you don't have to deal with qualified immunity because what you're doing is is arguing the city itself violated the Constitution through a, a, a through a doctrine called Monell. But the problem then becomes in those cases that you have to show that the city's policy directly um, violated the Constitution, not just that one of its agents did. Um, and here we got over that hurdle with with uh, this case, and so it will continue on that issue. It seemed like
0: it. I, I, I get that it continues, but it seemed like the court was hung up on whether the policy was the police departments or the cities itself, which is usually not a worry because the police department is an entity of the city that if it creates policies, it would be the policy maker. Did, did you follow what the issue was there, Patrick?
1: Yeah, so the fourth circuit goes into a fair bit of attention on this issue of like well what what is the actual municipal actor here? Is it the police department or is it the city? The city wor- the city exists above the police department. The police department works for the city. It it didn't draw those distinctions as far from like a legally relevant perspective, although we see this happen occasionally where the courts will say, "Oh, you know what? You sued the police department, but actually but, who you should have sued was the city. And since you didn't, you're going to lose. And here here, I don't think that there was any um, loss in the case. The court just kind of treated them like this and sort of, in an academic sense, commented on these distinctions. But that is something that comes up a lot. And because here, um, the officers were sued in their official capacity, which is sort of the pass-through mechanism that you can get to the municipal, um, actor if you don't name them directly, although they did name the police department in the case. Another thing I need to point out is that IJ did file an amicus in this case. Shout out to, uh, to Tori Clark and Will Ronan. Tori actually just argued in the eighth circuit this morning. So shout out to her for that and a great, uh, judicial immunity, uh, amicus capacity. Um, but yeah, we, we have been highlighting these problems and I want to zoom in on one last thing, which is one of the ways that you can show something's clearly established is through, um, not controlling, but a a consensus of persuasive authority. So here we argued, well, there's six circuits that have said recording the police is protected by the First Amendment. That should have been good enough to let these officers know that they couldn't do this. And that is the argument that the court distinguished by saying, actually, live streaming ain't recording. So that's enough of a difference for us. And that means the officers get the immunity.
0: And I should point out, uh, listeners may have heard a couple times a police siren in the background while Patrick was talking uh, that is not an interaction he is having with police, but because um, our headquarters where he is is um, uh, blessed with uh, a number of emergency vehicles that that go by quite uh, quite regularly. So I have I don't believe in co- I don't believe in coincidences, Anthony. <laughs> well, we'll we'll leave that to uh, I think our listeners' imagination. But I do have one question that's a bit of a devil's advocate question, and but I I think the court could have used it in in sorting out what its thoughts are on the on this. And that's that so they said live streaming, you know, is just different than recording, because you can you could um you could bring up the, the current location and then I don't know you'd have a, a troop of you know peasants with pitchforks come and help you out or or whatever. It's the Elon Musk's assassination coordinates. <laughs> I had thought of that. But um what if there was a rule Like, how would this come up if there was a rule that you can't like call somebody while you're having a police interaction, which I think is a much, I mean, that's been around for a while, longer than there's been Facebook live. So how has that been treated either in the case law or just like, what is the usual policy? Because I could see more like, don't be on the phone right now. You need to talk to me. You can call when I go back to my squad car and, you know, whatever, and that really that's kind of much more also falls within a fourth amendment bucket than a first amendment bucket because right you're not broadcasting quote unquote you're just you're just talking to you know probably a family member or whatever
1: yeah i think uh i don't know what the law looks like in that space actually to be honest with you but i do think this is, goes exactly to what Judge Niemeyer's concurrence was getting at. We have all these ways that we're able to restrict people's rights. For instance, he says, you know, if if police are detaining you for some reason and you have a lawful firearm, they can take that away from you and we don't consider that an independent second amendment violation as long as it's reasonable within the confines of the 4th amendment and he's saying essentially the same thing should apply when we look at recording. And I think that would have been a better example for him to say instead of live streaming what if you were just saying, "Hey, you're calling people. You ha- get to have your cell phone and call people even though you're being detained. Um, and I, I do think those are difficult questions that are not clear from um, the operation of the way the First and the Fourth Amendment or the Second Amendment, for that matter, interact. And so we don't really know. But but like you said, I mean, you could see the argument going, well, if I'm allowed to live stream to an unknown number of people, why am I not allowed to get on the phone with my mom? Um, and I don't have a good answer for that right off the top of my and head. And on
0: top of all of this – I guess is just the reason why we're even talking about it is because of qualified immunity. The actual constitutional issues are much more simple, which sounds weird, but unfortunately, uh, it's true.
1: No, I think I think you're right. I think that's a good point to to just emphasize before we move on, which is if we just looked at the constitutional issues, we could decide them. But instead, we have to go through this weird gloss that sits on the top of them that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the constitutional violations, and that's where we spend all of our time and effort. And I think it really is a distraction from the development
0: of the law in a way that's not really helpful to anybody. Well said. Well, something else that isn't helpful to um, much of anybody is rent control. Now, rent control sounds good because it keeps your rent controlled, especially if you think the rent is too damn high. Uh, But unfortunately, just about everyone these days uh, who's on the outside agrees that it has all this uh, pernicious effects. We're not going to go into like all the economic stuff, but uh, there's there's all kinds of things you could read by economists across the board about why rent control is a bad idea. But we're going to talk today about the constitutional dimensions of it and how it's practiced in New York City. So, Saranjan, um, 0 for 2 in the Second Circuit, it seems, when it comes to rent control and property rights.
2: That's right, Anthony. Uh, so this is uh, right now what we're going to talk about today is a pair of cases. One was the uh, a facial challenge and one was an as applied challenge to New York's uh, rent stabilization law, or RSL, a uh, just a one large facet of New York's rent price control scheme. Um, and they were both under uh, they were both takings challenges and due process challenges. Um, <clears throat> but it's going to require maybe a little bit of a background on on the takings context here. Um, so, of course, you know anybody who's familiar with the work that IJ has done knows very much about you know our eminent domain work, stuff like. Like kilo, where it's it's we all know that we're within the realm of takings, and it's just a question of okay, is this a proper taking, or is this is this the the right amount of, of of money? Is 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 this is this can the government take this property? But then there's in the realm of inverse condemnation, you might call it, or what what is another name for it? Is when the government is trying to do something or has done something, and the property owner says, hey, this is is a taking effectively, that you you can't do without paying me money. And so uh, if you've authorized somebody to, uh, you know, occupy my property for uh, indefinitely, or if you've destroyed something, if you seized something, you know, for the public good, and, and I'm an innocent owner, then you're supposed, you're supposed to pay me. And so um, we have these cases that are, are more like, from the destruction context of like flood control cases and such and, uh, and seizure cases. But then we have these uh, cases that are called regulatory takings, which go from the early, th- early 20th century when uh, in, these, in, a, in a case that uh, it was a Justice Holmes case in, uh, in the 1920s about uh, when a regulation – might be so onerous or, or be so restrictive on the property owner that it effectively is taking your property uh, without compensation and in violation of the Fifth Amendment. And so with these cases here, they were arguing basically it, it's, it's an interesting area of the law because it's rent control and so there's elements of both a physical occupation um, and also a a regulation. And so these, these, these plain plaintiffs were able to argue that these rent control laws, both uh, were physical takings, and regulatory takings, um, kind of whichever way you slice it. And uh, basically, what these in uh, starting in the after the World Wars, uh, New York City had created this rent uh, standards board, that would um, determine what permissible prices you could charge in rent, what would be permissible price increases every year. And uh, they would look at various factors in the market, various, you know, how much they thought uh, uh, was a reasonable rate of return. They would give uh, landlords certain amount of allocations for property improvements. Um, they had these various ways that you could sort of, I guess, graduate out of the rent um, if you if the tenant started earning more than a certain amount of money. Um to where uh basically by by now it's it applies only to certain buildings in the city it doesn't apply to all all buildings i think it's just buildings that were built before some time in the 70s and then to only like a sort certain, certain network of units within those buildings because of the way that some of them had graduated out of it but there were ways basically that if you were renting one of those controlled units you could rent it indefinitely at the rent controlled uh, price and that you would also have rights to renew it pretty much indefinitely, except for a few certain situations. Like if you defaulted or whatever, um, they, um, um, they amended the law recently to remove even some of those, uh, ways that you could, uh, graduate out of it through like, in, uh, earning more of income or, um certain ways that owners could convert the properties back to their own use or or de- deregulate them get them out of the rent control market and so these uh two groups sued uh saying that that this this was basically requiring them to submit to indefinite physical occupation of their property which was like uh basically giving giving up their their property to a, a physical occupation and then conversely that it was uh violating the uh, regulatory takings uh, doctrine because they had just gone too far. It was too restrictive on their ability to earn from their investments. Um, The courts basically in in the facial claim, one said that they couldn't meet the standard of showing that it was, uh, that this was unconstitutional in every single instance. They didn't buy the physical occupation argument just because there's a couple of ways that owners could still, uh, could could still get out of a lease, like like theoretically, uh, that oh if, if they defaulted on the rent, uh, or that there there's a couple of the, because they didn't in every instance require an occupation, it wasn't a facial per se taking. Um, and I then, thought uh, I thought
1: I thought there was this crazy portion there that's for anyone who doesn't live in New York City shocking, which is that you don't realize that people can essentially inherit these rent controlled apartments. And so a lot of this analysis, right, is is the court saying, uh, well, you invited them in, you selected these people, essentially the vampire theory of of <laughs> occupation, right? You invited them in, and now their whole family for eternity, essentially, could theoretically continue inheriting these places.
2: And that's basically where the physical the 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 um because there's a couple of cases recently supreme court that that sort of strengthened the idea of physical takings and when it, when an occupation when when the government requires that you allow somebody to stay on your property when that can be you know uh, the, the government can't do that or at least has to pay you for it and basically the court's analysis rested like you said Patrick on well you at one point signed one lease with them and therefore basically you're stuck you can be stuck uh, f- Practically forever, and yeah, it's uh, interesting.
1: I mean, they didn't talk much about it, but you kind of they draw this distinction where they talk about Cedar Point, for instance, and they say like, well, obviously the government can't force you to accept people to come into your property in the first instance without it being a taking. But as soon as you open that door and let them in, like getting them out, that's basically not for us to, to weigh in on from the takings perspective.
2: Yeah, and then the regulatory uh, taking side too. Uh, again, they faulted them for bringing the facial claim for saying, "Well, using regulatory takings doctrine," which I'm not going to get all t- toward all the factors of the regular takings doctrine it's just uh, now or are uh, just yet anyway. That uh, they required you to look at its effect on any given property and its effect on any given investor's expectations, and 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 that you, know, you basically, in so many words, you effectively can't really do that with regulatory takings jurisprudence. Um, And but then with the as applied one, too, they they faulted them for basically not being even more specific with with some of these provisions. And it was it it, it, a lot of it really was just a whole a whole mess, I think. And I I, I think that that the case really it's it's it could be a good vehicle for the court, the Supreme Court. To clean up some of its takings jurisprudence here, be, because uh, you first, this Supreme Court seems to be more willing to do do some of that cleanup work. Just in the last few years, uh, they've they've gotten rid of some certain uh, really uh, asinine procedural hurdles that that they they cleaned up. Just in like uh, the last few years, and what this case really goes down, I think on especially the regulatory taking side, is that it shows why the what the Penn Central test, which was a test from the nineteen seventies, just needs to be revamped on the regulatory taking side to look at more about about. Uh, the character of the governmental action needing to really control here because because the way i look at it here is that if you look at regulatory takings as being just the government is trying to commandeer your property th- through ways other than just directly you know through indirect means what's going on here in new york is is that they're trying to basically have people have private property owners provides a form of public housing um, and and it's what and the the problem is is that we know that on um, the one hand, government needs to be able to define the boundaries of landlord tenant relations and protect uh, tenants, you know, and, and potentially vulnerable tenants. Um, that there is a line somewhere where that turns into trying to just conscript uh, housing for for. For public housing, for public use.
1: So, Ranjan, what did you, what did you, like, I, the thing that kind of struck me, and I'm wondering what you think is you read the community housing case, which is the facial case, and they go through all this analysis about, oh, this facial standard is so high, you have to show basically in almost every instance this would be unconstitutional, yada, yada, yada. And then you, you jump to the other case where that's not an issue and they're like, oh, well, you still lose for all these 10,000 reasons. So like why, why are we going through this r- ridiculous rigmarole to be like, well, you know, the facial standard is very difficult. It's very h- hard to meet. And then, of course, in the case when it doesn't apply, they're like, oh, well, you still lose for reasons 1 through 25.
2: I think, again, it's problems with these regulatory takings cases where uh, there's a, 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 one of the prongs that they lost on for the as applied challenge was a, uh, a ripeness. Prong because there was a hardship exemption that they could that they could ask to change, and I, th- I think part of the problem is 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 okay. So I've been trying to avoid talking about the factors of regulatory takings analysis, but I probably might need to. So you have the the there are these three factors called the character of of the governmental action, and then the. Uh, Reasonable expectation of of the investments returns being the second factor, and then the third is the the economic impact on the property owner. And I think that what this case could be used to establish is that really what matters is the character of the governmental action, because really what a lot of the court is saying through here is that well, you know, you can't you have to show with each individual property what the economic impact was on each individual property, And, and it's it's really saying you can only apply just as a just each property owner's basis to, to say, like, really what the effect has been on this property to determine if it's, quote, gone too far for a regulatory takings case. Well, I
1: thought, and, I actually thought it was interesting and, and kind of amusing in the expectations context where the court, citing, you know, amicus briefing and other court decisions, more or less has this sort of scorpion in the frog approach to New York City uh, landlord ownership, which is like, hey, Uh, you knew the scorpion was a scorpion when you gave it a ride across your back. And so you should have expected that they would screw you over at some point because that's just how New York
0: landlord tenant law works. It wasn't just that like the city's a bad place to invest. You should have known that. It was like, not only are the laws when you bought the property bad, but you knew they were going to make them worse in the future because it's New York, come on. And so that actually goes into the analysis. It was very much like, your expectation here should have been that the
1: law would have been incredibly volatile and changing all the time and that you couldn't rely on anything.
2: Yeah, and I, I think that it's just – it goes to show – I can't remember which scholars or judges it is, but, but there's – I've heard the criticism that the court's regulatory takings jurisprudence really sounds like some sort of due process jurisprudence, and and it would be nice to see the court really try to make the distinctions between between the two a little bit a little bit more clear in this kind of regard. Because you're right, like the fact that the fact that you you know you should have known that we are, are a place that doesn't really care about property rights shouldn't therefore mean that you lose property rights. I mean, it is it is in the
0: United States. So you would think there'd be some, some kind of protection there. It seems like not we
1: that we've just, we can't untie the Gordian knot here. So, you know, it's, it's New York city. That's, you know, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere, but you might not be able to make it there.
0: Well, I do remember when one of these cases was filed, uh, gosh, probably about two, three years ago now. Um, although don't quote me on that. And, uh, I, I think I, I remember hearing from the attorneys at the time that this is, you know, they, they, kind of knew they would lose at the second circuit uh, when and if they got that far. And so I think you know this is in the long run for this case, it's either going to be a footnote. Um, it's another challenge to rent control. There's been many others before as the court uh, is it, uh, happy to point out in its ruling, but uh, it's not really set up for the second circuit to rule on. It's, sec- it's set up for perhaps to have the Supreme Court um, take a stab, as, as you said, Sarantan. So we will see if, uh, well, how high, I, I'm sure they will try to get higher, but how high this case gets uh, in the coming months. So we'll keep watch on that. The case,
1: the case gets too damn high.
0: Yeah, it may get too damn high in some people's
1: minds. Well, let me, let me, let me, can I say one thing? I, I have a criticism of this opinion, the, the community housing decision. The court takes 22 pages before it tells you what it's doing in the case. It, so, it, it, to very careful readers, there's kind of like this little synopsis at the beginning that says we affirm, but that's it. It doesn't, in its opinion, tell you until page 22 what it's doing, and I find that very frustrating as a as a, a reader of court opinions, especially you know if you're if it's your case that comes out, the first thing you want to do is click it open, see what happened. Here you got to read the whole darn thing before you have any idea of what the court's actually holding.
2: Well, I think I think if you read through the whole main part of the opinion or, or the, the factual background, it, it gives more of just a history of this, and it, its emphasis is that you know that, that New York City that lots and lots of people have done have have looked at this, and we're not going to like. We're not going to start messing with it now.
1: Hey, all I'm asking for is a roadmap in the intro that says, here's what we're doing <laughs> and here's why. And then they can spend 20 pages explaining
0: it. Yes, yeah, something I have become more, very much a believer in in recent years that I, I probably should have believed better when I actually helped write opinions when it, in my clerkship is opinions are not mystery novels. You put at the beginning what's going to happen. You even put a little reasoning in the first couple paragraphs and then you go on. And it's like, I love there, even at the Supreme Court, there are certain justices, you read opinion, you don't, after the first couple paragraphs, you do not know even what's, like, even where the arrow is pointing in reversed or affirmed or vacated until you get, you know, like two thirds of the way through the opinion. It's not that hard to put it in a paragraph or two at the beginning. Um, This isn't Agatha Christie. You can save it for that genre, if you want to write that way, but if you're writing an opinion, it can be a great opinion with all kinds of, you know, snappy, uh, uh, pop culture references even, but just have a little roadmap as Patrick says. We're singing from the same hymn book here, Anthony. (laughs) Hallelujah. All right. Okay. Well, I think this sermon is over. Um, thank you guys for coming. I think you're right. The rent is too damn high, but that's why you all should be Yimbies. Um, and, uh, and Patrick's also right that, uh, we, we have a right to live stream the police. So go to, uh, all the follow Patrick on his road show. If you guys are roadies and you know, want to bring him some, um, snacks or, or beer or wh- whatever it no is. No brown M&Ms. No, no brown M&Ms in the bowl. Okay. Okay. Got, got that. And everyone else, uh, we will, we will uh, see you next time. And in the meantime. I hope that all of you get engaged.